0: Welcome to episode 159 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I am Dr. Laurent Bannock, the host of this podcast. So earlier today, I had a really great discussion with two guests. I say guests because one of them was not really a guest. Professor Kevin Tipton, of course, is our our resident expert, so to speak, our director of science and research. And our guest was Dr. Dan Owens, who's Been on a number of times before, has done quite a bit of work with us at the IOPN. In fact, and as per our last conversation, all about vitamin D, Dan did an awesome job, as did Kev, of course, on this topic of exercise induced muscle damage. So, in this conversation, we discussed what actually is exercise muscle damage, what causes it, and what are the nutritional solutions or strategies. And as you'll gather from our conversation today, it's a really nuanced topic as actually most of these topics tend to be the the science the the, the evidence the research is a constantly evolving target if you like it's a, it's always a work in progress and as you will gather from the end of today it's still very much a work in progress particularly on this topic of exercise induced muscle damage and in particular the nutritional strategies that can have impact on that so i know you're going to really enjoy this podcast today, we, we talked about exercise-induced muscle damage, how it can often but not always result in muscle soreness, but most importantly, in a temporary loss of, of muscle function. And of course, that is going to affect training and subsequent adaptations to training and of course, performance. And when we're focused on, on athletes, of course, that's going to be a real game changer, literally, or a game killer a performance killer if this is an issue. So we're interested in, in it from that perspective of course. As far as nutrition is concerned, we're we're interested in the nutritional interventions that can accelerate the recovery of muscle function. We want to ameliorate the soreness, yes, but we most definitely want to do what we can to have a positive impact. And that requires that we actually understand what exercise-induced muscle damage is actually all about and that is what we attempt to do in this podcast i say attempted because i'm i'm very happy with how this conversation came out today where both dan and kev took us through a masterclass on the topic where we'll learn about the actual mechanisms of exercise induced muscle damage we talk about some of the problems with the research how some assumptions how some conclusions have been drawn from those studies which maybe one should cast a more critical eye over and, you know, be perhaps a little bit more skeptical about the information that's come out of that. We get into that. And of course, we talk about the various aspects of the immune system and how that's involved in particularly satellite cell involvement and muscle repair, which is where there does appear to be quite a, a good case for nutrition strategies. And yes, we talked about all sorts of dietary and supplemental solutions, um, protein, amino acids, uh, functional foods, dietary and supplemental antioxidants and polyphenols. Some of the problems there, particularly with the dampening effect or impact on adaptations to training, which is a major concern with supplementation, of course. We talked about omega-3s, we talked about vitamin D, although you'll want to revert back to Dan Owen's uh, podcast a few months ago all about vitamin D for a real deep dive on that topic and a few practical considerations from Dan and from Kev. Anyway, you're going to love this podcast. I think it was, it'll was it be well worth your time uh, giving it a good listen. But before you do, do go check out our website at www.theiopn.com where you can get links to this podcast for access to the transcript which you may find of value i hope you do as well as the related podcast the links to the paper one of the papers that we referred to frequently you can get access to that and while you're there check out our practice focused online diploma in performance nutrition it is a professional postgraduate level program entirely focused on practice so if you have a great deal of interest in performance nutrition sport and exercise nutrition maybe you've got your degrees in the subject master's degrees strength conditioning sports nutrition even do check out our diploma it's all about enhancing your knowledge giving you a specialization in sport and exercise nutrition practice we've also got sempro which is of course our platform our our software package if you like our online software package Which is all about providing you with the tools uh, and resources that you need to practice effectively with individuals or with teams. And we're constantly rolling out new features, uh, whether it's nutritional periodization tools, dietary prescription tools, recipes, recipe creation, supplement management, resources to help you manage data from your clients, whether it's blood tests, body composition data, uh, and like I say, work with groups and teams collaborate with fellow performance nutritionists or support staff and overall run a private practice if that's where you're working so go check that out at sempro on our website at the iopn.com where you'll learn about everything else we do our team our awesome team at the iopn so look i know you want to get straight to the podcast here it is and i hope you enjoy it as much as i enjoyed being part of the conversation take care Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. Today, I have another, uh, well, we could describe this either as a double act or as a triple act, depending on how much I contribute to this conversation. But today, we're going to be talking about exercise-induced muscle damage. We're going to talk about what it is, what causes it. And because this is a performance nutrition-focused podcast, we're definitely going to talk about the uh, Nutritional Solutions, which is more or less the title of the paper that I'm using for the uh, framework for this conversation. And the lead author on that was our guest, Dr. Daniel Owens. Dan, welcome back. It's good to have you here. Cheers. And we've got Professor Kev Tipton, Kevin Tipton, our Director of Science and Research who is also an expert in this topic, of course, is back to, to back me up. So before I get into this topic and just briefly explain why it is I, I wanted to, to do this podcast on this topic, Dan, just super quickly, who are you? What are you up to? Uh, tell us about yourself.
1: Yes, so my name's Dan Owens. I'm a, a lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University in the uh, School of Sport and Exercise Science. So uh, I've been been working here now for the past three or four years, just flown by. And yeah, my research interests really are, are all around skeletal muscle adaptation and how skeletal muscle repairs itself after after damage. So uh, that's what this paper is about. And and yeah, that's where my my research focus is is uh, mainly focused. Yeah,
0: and of course, it's people would have to be more or less new to this podcast if they're not actually familiar with you, because of course you did a. A podcast with me not so long ago back in November of last year on vitamin D and the athlete which is another area of expertise of yours so I recommend everyone has a listen to that and actually we will touch upon that uh topic a little bit because it is relevant to today's chat so but thank you Dan I appreciate you coming back on I always appreciate your knowledge and insights both as a researcher as a as a lecturer and as a practitioner so there's um there's that additional skill set that you have in actually translating that information into what is of value to the bulk of our, our listeners, which is in itself a skill set. So that's great. Kev, welcome back. It's good to see you again. There's a bit of a link between you guys, I know. So you might as well uh, tell us about that Kev, because you were recently given a new appointment, weren't you?
2: I am. I'm very happy to say that, uh, I have a three-year appointment as a visiting professor in the Research Institute for Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Moores University. So Dan and I are are colleagues in that extent. Now, I do want to point out, based on the response to this on Twitter, this is not a full-time appointment. I'm not getting paid a cent for this. I just have to do some work so I can have the colleagues and the friends and hopefully get to see Dan and Graham and James and these guys a few times to do some work together. So it, this is not on Twitter when I put it out there, people seem to think that I was moving to Liverpool and all this. No, it's it's a temporary thing. So I'll hopefully get to go over there and see people but and do some lectures and stuff. But but yeah, I'm, not, that's I'm, right. not, I'm you're- not raking
0: in I'm not raking in the dough or anything. No, 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 no. Well you're you're with us at the IOPN of course. Right. But I got a full-time job. Exactly. But that's what this is all about, isn't it? It's about collaboration. And I'm particularly keen on that, obviously for many years now I've been talking to lots of people who are from lots of different institutions or professional sports teams or private practices all all around the world and it is a is an incredibly valuable way to to share knowledge and disseminate you know that knowledge that isn't necessarily done or at least isn't as practical to do through traditional research or traditional publications, which is a huge advantage to to these podcasts. But ultimately, we are we are interested in these things for a reason. And um, there's no point being selfish about it. So it's all about spreading the knowledge and furthering the field and so on. Now, both of you, of course, aren't just people who happen to have a lot of knowledge on this topic of exercise-induced muscle damage. You have both done original research in these areas. So maybe, Dan, it would be good for you to kick this off then with why why was this review that I've referred to, which I will put I will link to this paper in the show notes, which was published back in 2019 in the European Journal of, of Sports Science? But it's safe to say that as it relates to efforts to describe where we are on this topic, what we know, what we don't know, and particularly the nutritional interventions, there aren't there isn't that much out there, which is why I was particularly keen on doing this podcast and as Kev had pointed out before we started recording, there are a number of things that we want to make clear in this in this uh, conversation, which I'll leave you guys to bring up shortly. But, you know, what led to, to this particular review and, and, and why, you know, why did you initiate that process?
1: Yes, it's a great question, and, and and nice to reflect on where it's it started. Really, I think the idea came about when I was doing my PhD, actually, back in sort of around about 2015, and I was doing my PhD on on vitamin D and and uh, the latter stages of the PhD being focused on muscle damage and repair, and potentially how vitamin D might have a have a role in that. And um, during that time, Graham and myself had been talking about exactly what you just said that there wasn't really anything out there in the literature to say where are we currently at with nutrition and and muscle damage we know it's a big thing that athletes talk about as we'll probably come on to in the podcast but there wasn't really anything out there that sort of summarized where we're at uh, as a field and we so we started writing it uh, when i was still doing my phd and I, i didn't really get to finish until i was doing my postdoc in in paris actually a couple of years later so it was really nice to finally get it across the line and bring in some really awesome authors onto that as well who who just contributed really cool different perspectives on it, which we hope we got across in the paper.
0: Yeah, and Kev, you, you've got more than just a passing interest on this topic as well, haven't you? Well,
2: yeah, I've been involved in a few studies using these these types of muscle damage models to try to evaluate some nutrition, potentially valuable nutrition interventions. Um there, there are some issues, and I think we can get into that as far as how these studies are done and what you know how to interpret the results. I think is a well a general statement would be I believe that results from these types of studies are often way way overinterpreted.
0: Yeah, and that is exactly why I wanted to get into this because quite simply, when you're working in well whether it's practice or research or education or whatever in sports science, exercise science, sport and exercise, nutrition, being our focus, obviously anything to do with with exercise or training, you start talking about adaptations to the various types of training, and you'll certainly get into the concept of muscle damage or soreness, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, and so on. And inevitably, you know, there are going to be questions about whether or not that is simply just an unpleasant side effect or whether it actually does impact performance or does it impact you know the adaptations to training is the is the you know the the muscle damage and the symptoms that we get from that is that something that is something that we should be trying to get rid of or is there a trade off there between the symptoms the unpleasantness of it or ultimately what we're trying to get out of, you know, the training that led to that event. And that's the sort of stuff that we need to get into now, because of course, on a very simple level, particularly in nutrition, you know, there's a lot of conversations about things like antioxidants and, and the impact that they can have on oxidative damage, for example, which is something that might come up in the, the sort of the, the, the phraseology, if you like, that you might Come across in in papers and topics and so on on this, and it's very easy to go, Oh, you know this problem's occurring, uh, I've read about this topic somewhere else in a different context, albeit therefore the solution's going to be to take all these sort of antioxidants and so on, which is something that we will of course talk about today, but before we we, we, we get into that in any great detail, Dan, I think it's probably worth first just defining what muscle damage is and what exercise induced muscle damage specifically is so that we're all on the same page on this topic.
1: Yeah, so exercise induced muscle damage anyway is is really characterized by these these symptoms that last f- from the bout of exercise up to around about 14 days after the exercise but the the sort of the length of time that you you know you see these symptoms for is really dependent on the the duration and intensity of the activity, but probably also the person's susceptibility to it as well, which is something we can come on to. Typically, the the direct impacts are a loss of functional capacity of the muscle. So the ability to produce force is an easy way to think about that. An increase in muscle soreness. You also get this sort of disturbed sense of of limb position and and also uh, how much force you're actually producing and there are some other things that can occur as well you know you can get a swelling of the of that affected limb a decreased range of motion and so on and so forth of all of those things the best marker that correlates to the damage is the loss of function so the loss of force and typically you know you'll see in the literature reports of you know anywhere from sort of a loss of 50 into 60 odd percent but again there there are a number of reasons that sort of can account for that which we can get into so
0: why are we feeling that this is a topic that we really need to understand in greater detail? And in particular, from a performance nutrition perspective, surely just take some painkillers or you just, to use a, a politically incorrect statement of just man up or whatever. You know, wh- why, I know you've mentioned loss of function and so on, but just how significant can this be? Um, And maybe a bit bit of a deeper dive into what actually is going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of why we're interested in it, I think... there are are two reasons and you touched on you touched on both of them the first one is probably how it directly affects performance i mean if you've got a loss of functional capacity of the muscle that's exactly how it's going to affect performance you're not going to be able to produce the sort of force that you need to in the type of event you want to do that's just a, a a given straightforward one the soreness is another issue but that i think that's a in a way, it's almost a little bit separate because soreness is so subjective uh, and and it doesn't really nicely correlate to the amount of damage so the management of these things around training and competition is really where we're interested in I think something we can get on to later on is considering recovery versus adaptation if this happens and we need a a rapid turnaround before we you know, perform the next bout of exercise. It might be another competitive bout. You're going to try and maximize the rate of recovery so you can go again. Is is that always necessary when the goal of the session is to bring about adaptation? Um, uh, maybe not. But, you know, in answer to your question, the reason that I think these things are interesting is because of the direct impact it can have on performance, but also the way the athlete is able to to, to train and compete, I think. In, in terms of, of what's going on, do you mean the sort of the mechanisms that drive exercise induced muscle damage?
0: Yeah, and let yeah yeah, well we we'll, we'll, let's get there in a second because yeah. I just just want to bring, you know, to the sort of front of mind that this situation that's occurring isn't just simply an inconvenient symptom that results in soreness. And likewise one has to think very clearly about what's going on to understand whether or not we should try to intervene with our Various strategies, whether it's you know, do I do I do some manual therapy, massage, or whatever, give it a good rub, so to speak? Do I stick my limb or whatever, whatever the area of the body is, into a vat of ice, or am I going to chuck back a bunch of anti-inflammatories or some of these novel nutritional compounds that we're starting to learn about? And I think the you know, there's a it, I've got a phrase that I use regularly on this podcast, which is. You know, you can, but should you? And it's very much that, that stop, think about this, you know, because your your solution may actually be worse than than the problem, which is something that I'm looking forward to to revealing. But in order to understand all of this, we're going to need to underpin it, of course, with an actual understanding of the mechanisms behind this muscle damage. So maybe you could take us down that, that path now, please
1: yeah for sure and and thanks for bringing up you know the point of that it's you know it's potentially not just an inconvenience the soreness yes potentially is is an inconvenience, but the the actual process of of muscle damage and the events that are occurring are are real physical changes to to the muscle so usually we we can think about muscle damage exercise induced muscle damage in two phases, the sort of primary and secondary damage phases. We didn't mention before, but damage is really caused mostly by eccentric contractions or lengthening muscle contractions. So they produce a higher force, but for uh, the same motor unit activation as you would get for a concentric contraction. So as a result, you've got a higher amount of stress placed on a a smaller number of fibres. So they're being put under a lot of stress effectively. And, and when that happens in these sort of eccentric lengthening contractions, what can happen is the, the contractile machinery, these you know the, the proteins that are responsible for muscle to contract, reach a point where they go beyond overlap. And, and essentially we have disruption to the machinery that allows our muscle to contract. Not only that, we probably have some disruption to some scaffolding proteins as well and also to the, to the proteins responsible for keeping all our muscle fibers together, so these extracellular matrix proteins as well. On top of that, we tend to see what's called excitation contraction uncoupling or a disruption to excitation contraction. And that is effectively how we turn a nerve impulse into a muscle contraction. So that seems to also occur during the, the, the primary phase. So all of this is occurring basically during or immediately after the the exercise bout is occurring. And that's the, the primary damage phase. The secondary damage phase is what is occurring as a consequence of those primary events. So, because we get disruption of, of the different contractile machinery, disruption to the muscle fiber membrane, we're kind of opening up the muscle fiber to have a, a sort of uncontrolled increase in, in calcium into the cell. That's one of the main things that happens. And usually, calcium is pretty well controlled in terms of its concentration in different places in the body, right? So, this, this sort of influx of calcium into the cell is a bit of a problem. Um, it starts to activate different systems that will break down proteins within the cell. The mitochondria within the cell can kind of mop that up to an extent and take care of it. But even the mitochondria at some point are going to become overloaded with this with this calcium. And then we just end up with more calcium sort of pouring back into the, the cytoplasm or the sort of space within the muscle. So that's sort of one issue that happens during the secondary damage phase. Then of course, we have the inflammatory response and this is something we can definitely get into because we might think of it as something that's going to cause muscle damage but it's also something that's super necessary it's absolutely essential that it happens for muscle to be repaired so during that inflammatory response we have our innate immune system that rapid part of our immune system and we get neutrophils and macrophages coming into the muscle to try and take care of all of the mess they're just gonna come in and start to try and engulf all of the all of the stuff that's been left behind and, and start to clear it up. But as a consequence, they also do release some what we would call cytotoxic substances and also some um reactive oxygen species or ROS, as you'll often read them as. And that can contribute to or it's thought to contribute to to further damage. You know, in summary, we have these two phases. We have the initial event where we have disruption to contractile and non-contractile proteins. And then we have this secondary damage phase where we have a bit of calcium that's all over the place and we have the immune system, which is trying to do its job, but it's also causing some secondary damage.
0: So thanks for that. That was a fantastic overview. So one issue that can come up when we're looking at these sorts of things, of course, is the way in which the muscle damage has been induced in a laboratory setting. Kev, I'm going to bring you in on this one because I know these are the sorts of things that drive you pretty crazy with how these types of studies are performed and then the assumptions that, that come from it and how that, you know, ends up influencing this body of knowledge on this topic. And ultimately, and my concern is how that influences practice and decision-making and and so on, where we don't necessarily have the knowledge and the laboratory experience that you guys have, we wouldn't necessarily know the difference between sort of a real-world scenario that induces muscle damage as opposed to this highly controlled setup. Is there aspects to what I've said there that, that needs further discussion, Kev? And, and what do you feel... Where are we at with this anyway
2: i I think so. um the models that are used to induce muscle damage are often quite artificial, maybe or definitely not directly applicable to a sporting situation, especially an elite sporting situation. So a lot of the studies, if you read the studies they i mean it's sort of you're sort of using the old sledgehammer effect, right where you're just going to do something really bad just to see the worst case scenario and then see if something works, some nutrition intervention works. So you take untrained individuals and you, we used to use a, well, in Birmingham, we had some sort of homemade kit, but basically you do these eccentric on a dynamometer or something, eccentric contractions. And you do ten sets of ten or something, and on untrained guys, so they are just completely shattered. I mean, these guys, you know, were walking in a circle because one of their legs wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, it was, and and so then you you know then you give the nutrition intervention, and what you've done, of course, is set up the the scenario where you've got this really really big effect. So if you do the intervention you might you have your best chance to see it so from a proof of concept standpoint it's for something but i think the problem is is when people see that and then you know they see a, a situation where you've taken untrained individuals you've really really whacked their muscles and then you see some sort of some kind of effect which is really relatively marginal most of these studies and then all of a sudden it's trumpeted as hey let's give them whatever the latest high fad nutrition is. So I think that's where the problem is, is taking these proof of concept studies and then really just skipping all those steps in between and going right to, we're going to apply this to elite athletes. And there are so many problems with that based on lots of gaps in between. And I think that you often see it when you read the muscle damage papers, you often see this mentioned somewhere in the discussion. There might be a paragraph or something on limitations and it's kind of buried in there. But that often I've seen it get ignored many, many times. And I think that's where the problem is, is it's not necessarily that these studies aren't any good. They are what they are, as long as people interpret them appropriately and apply that information with a a fair bit of caution.
0: Yeah. And it's, I I guess like, a I mean, we obviously have to respect the fact that the further back in the past we go, there was a lot less knowledge on this topic, of course, but that that there's also less technology that you guys now have available. But of course that should all be factored in, in, in the appraisal of that knowledge to date, which of course is, is, you know, how you approach your, your reviews and, and so on on this topic. And that, you know, before we get into the whole nutrition thing, I just want to sit in this area for a bit and truly understanding what exercise-induced muscle damage is so that we can truly respect the need for not getting getting into any sort of strategy or or trying to influence this. And Dan, just, just quickly take us through, because Kev's given us, you know, sort of a, a very important need to be, you know, we've got to be cautious. There's a warning with this having done some of these studies yourself maybe you could just give us an idea for the listeners how how these studies are done now nowadays or how they ideally would be done at least from your perspective
1: i think yeah ideally how they do- would be done is a is a better way to think of it because we still see studies being done that don't control for a lot of factors and um, kev touched on you know the main the main problem which is that you know, they are sledgehammer approaches, you, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing a really pretty excessive sort of eccentric loading of the muscle, which you, I guess, unless you're doing sort of ultra running, a lot of downhill running, you might not see something similar to that. Another, another thing that, which, which really muddies the whole thing is this repeated bout effect as well, which is, is not adequately controlled for in a lot of studies. And that is this phenomenon where you basically once you've done one bout of eccentric exercise, you 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 get some adaptation, as you'd expect, to the eccentric lengthenum, which actually protects you from future bouts of, of loading. So that's due to a number of different factors. You get some remodeling of that extracellular matrix, you get neural changes, neural adaptations, and you also get changes in the way the, the immune system responds as well. The take-home message there though is that you don't see the same loss of function and the same severity of soreness if you if you repeatedly do the exercise. One way that we've tried to get around that, so we we had a we've had a, a project that we've had sponsored by Solomon uh, running, looking at sort of different compression garments and different things like this. And and the way that we've designed the study and ran the study is to basically have all the participants do a month of progressive periodized downhill running training first before we've actually analyzed any any of the, the compression stuff. So we could be pretty sure that there's been some adaptation to the type of exercise before we even look at anything. So by the time they get to the sort of damaging downhill running type exercise, they should have had the sort of basal type of adaptation you might expect of more trained people and we think that is a at least a step in the right direction to kind of mitigate this this repeat about effect and interestingly from that study we haven't published the results yet but a lot of the really interesting data have come from the the, the the training adaptation phase so we're going to try and publish that on its it on by itself just to show you know how adaptations to eccentric contractions from, from downhill running actually happen on multiple different levels so we've got ultrasound data we've got some biopsies some bloods and stuff as well and obviously some uh, functional outputs as well so I think if you really want to translate any of this information you have to I think we need people who are used to doing eccentric exercise first, or we at least need to give them some adequate familiarization before they get involved in the experimental part of the trials, just because they're going to adapt and that really is going to muddy the data. There's no way for us to predict who's going to respond in what way to the type of muscle damage and exercise. So yeah, in, in addition to what Kev said, I think this repeat about effect is something that we have to consider as well.
0: Yeah. So clearly we're, this is very much still in the learning phase on this topic isn't it so look let's just i just want to fixate on the word damage just quickly because like when you look up the word damage in the dictionary the quick sort of google response to that dictionary google is physical harm that impairs the value usefulness or normal function of something and of course you know you you think of damage you think of oh a car crash or somebody damaged something and it you know it's a negative thing it was unintentional it was an accident but that isn't that isn't necessarily the case is it there's a situation here where the the exercise induced muscle damage is is a necessary strategy if you like and then there's also it's more like Due to an excess for example overdoing something can you help us understand what the difference is between these different situations and when it actually is necessary why is that the case
1: yeah i mean when we think about exercise induced muscle damage we also have to differentiate between sort of an injury you know we're not talking about a muscle tear or something that uh, is going to keep you out of action for for a long period of time. So we're talking mostly about ultrastructural damage to to the mainly to the stuff that's inside the muscle, the contractile proteins, and potentially due to the membrane and the, and the sort of the extracellular matrix. But really, that it's probably a better way to think about it as remodeling. I think damage doesn't care that sort of thought, of, as you say that you know it's unintentional, it's it's an injury in a way, but there's a difference between a tear in the muscle and sort of exercise induced muscle damage you know it's it's also not that clear because there's no sort of good relationship between soreness and physical damage to to the muscle itself so when people report soreness uh, following different types of exercise there might actually be no real markers of of muscle damage at least at the sort of structural level occurring so that is something that is is not so clear. has any damage actually occurred? We're not always so sure about that so yeah, I think for for listeners it's 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 important to know that what we're not talking about here is an injury. It's sort of a remodeling of the muscle in response to lengthening contractions that That's the easiest way to think about it and
0: that that's why i I find this so interesting because we use words and phrases in the science of this when Articles are written or conversations are had between experts and researchers. But that, of course, is an area where things can get lost in translation. So when I take us back, Kev, to our podcast we did on muscle protein breakdown in response to nutrition and exercise back in December, which is relevant to this conversation as well, potentially. You know, how if somebody stopped you in the streets, Kev, and said, Well, how do we differentiate muscle protein breakdown and muscle? Damage. What I mean? How do we? You know, where does where do things differentiate, and where are they similar?
2: Well, I think you know Dan's nice description earlier about what's happening with some of these proteins being disrupted and and that sort of thing, and then and some of these proteolytic, you know, the macrophages, etc., bring in their some proteolytic systems or and enzymes. So you know, essentially, what happens is you get some of these proteins are disrupted and damaged, and and then they're broken down and. And the amino acids are reutilized for something, possibly recycled into proteins in the muscle or or out into the system, into the liver for other things. But yeah, there's going to be some protein breakdown involved there for sure. And then Dan alluded to this earlier. One of the things that always bugs me about these papers is, especially if they have any, if the intervention has anything to do with amino acids or protein, they're going to attribute the whatever success they have with soreness or something to muscle protein synthesis. Dan, and these guys in this paper touched on that it's just seems so unlikely based on the slow turnover rate that we're talking about that even if you do the math and I've done this for people try to make this argument that you just cannot come up with any reasonable amount of protein that's synthesized in the time it takes to start seeing improvements based on these nutritional interventions. It just, it just, it's just not realistic it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. so it's not protein synthesis is what you know, like for example we we had our study in 2010 Sarah Jackman's study where we saw some lessening of the soreness with branched chain amino acids and people wanted to attribute that to protein synthesis stimulation by the branched chain amino acids and we're seeing the soreness improved in hours and it, that you're just not going to see any reasonable amount of protein made in that short period of time so it can't be that it's
0: got to be something else Also, an elite athlete is going to report soreness in a different way than a recreational athlete, right? It's going to be a completely, I mean, I'm sure there's examples either way, but that's a factor here, isn't it? Because soreness is, you know, you don't have, you know, a digital display on your forehead that gives you a specific. indicator of muscle soreness it can be quite uh it can be quite a self-reported process
2: I. Right. i mean that goes back to what i was i said a, a few minutes ago which is the models that we use you know again in that study that i just mentioned the, the guys that we used in that were completely untrained and so they were really 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 sore then you got to think about what's the mechanism of the soreness well again it the soreness doesn't really have anything directly to do with the disruption of those muscle proteins it's more likely in the in the paramecium, the epimysium, in the muscle fascia, you don't have any pain receptors in actually in the belly of the muscle. So, in fact, when we do muscle biopsies, that's what we rely on. We only we only anesthetize the fascia of the muscle. We don't mess with putting the lidocaine down into the muscle belly. It's because there are no pain receptors in there. So, all that soreness. So, again, to attribute, and I've seen it in papers, and I've seen people present it and say, hey, it's muscle soreness is being improved by protein census So you go, no, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons that, that, that that's just not doesn't make any sense. And that's separate from the, mo- the model or the population that you're studying, which is what you very correctly alluded to, which is elite individuals are very different from, you know, from the untrained people that are often used in these studies.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, and you know it's important that the listeners understand that because we can often make decisions or choices based on how we feel that day. Oh, I'm a bit tired, or I, I feel like I've got the sniffles coming on, or oh, I feel a bit sore. I must have overdone the training, and um, you know, in order to actually interpret that that symptom, if you want to call it a symptom, it, you know, it does require a bit of bit of knowledge. So, if we, well, well, if we just, let me just jump yeah, in That being said, you're you're absolutely right.
2: But when you do these studies, especially with these untrained individuals, the the change in the soreness is so dramatic that it's not just a "how bad I feel today" thing. Sure, it's it's real, and you can you can get a lot of variability around the the mean. But they have really
0: really dramatic increases in soreness, so it it's real. And so, so where I'm where I was coming from actually is you know rather than somebody look you know we've just come out of lockdown literally, <laughs> people are back in the gyms as of you know right now you know there's going to be quite a few people who are suddenly experiencing some soreness what i'm trying to do here is differentiate that scenario from somebody who's months into their training program as a recreational athlete or or as an elite athlete and this problem is occurring where dan right at the beginning you mentioned you know there are some very important risks if you like some consequences to this which is it can literally reduce the function of of the muscle and for an athlete that's serious almost every kind of athlete that's going to be serious of course and or there might be an influence on adaptations to training which is you know further down the road it's not just a loss of function it's a loss of performance which for most athletes is the ultimate goal so dan just quickly because you did mention briefly but you know if we accept that exercise induced muscle damage is not specifically you know a freak accident as such it is something that occurs what are the types of activities then that are most likely in the real world with people who are not newbies to exercise what 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 you know what are the types of exercise and factors that are going to make this this conversation more relevant going forwards when we talk about strategies
1: yeah i mean the the main one is the the t- the type of contraction that leads to this is going to be predominantly eccentric. There's not much evidence to suggest that concentric shortening contractions are going to to result in damage. So any sort of movement that's resulting in a lot of high force eccentric contractions performed at slower speeds are, are really going to, be what uh, determines the, the degree of damage. In terms of real world, I mean, you know, downhill running where you've got sort of the deceleration forces that where the, mus- the muscle is having to contract while lengthening is going to cause some muscle damage. If you think about eccentric motions in the gym, when you're doing sort of e- the eccentric phases of of lifting movement, perform with a high weight at a slow speed, these things are going to result in in muscle damage. For those who are maybe a bit less trained, you know unfamiliar movements that have got eccentric components are going to cause some damage as well, less so the more trained you are. but as i say the uh, the the more trained the individual, it's going to take a lot more to actually see any signs of of exercise induced muscle damage, not to take us off piste but the type of muscle soreness that some athletes might report at least in contact sports is probably more due to the actual the, the type of contacts that they're going into rather than the actual movement itself so it's you're going to see it less so in a in a more trained individual but if it's a unfamiliar activity that's where you're going to see most of this happening because you're just not adapted to the type of uh, the type of contraction
0: so when when we read about or talk about, as has been done on this podcast, I think about conversations with Stu Phillips and Kev, of course, Luke Van Loon and and those guys, Brad Schoenfeld, we talked about methods, uh, sort of the whole concept of hypertrophy. There's all sorts of mechanisms at play and responses to lifting heavy and the importance of calories and protein and so on. But, you know, one thing that you talk about in this review, which has come up, in the past, is is specifically the role that satellite cells have in this process, which is something you don't tend, you certainly don't hear about that in the lay literature, and it doesn't come up particularly often in in the general conversations of this topic. But of course, it is relevant when we're talking about nutritional strategies. Maybe you could just tell us a bit more about that 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 process and how that leads into nutritional strategies being a potential strategy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, for for those who maybe don't know what satellite cells are, they're they're essentially just the stem cells of the muscle. So muscle doesn't have its own ability to keep dividing and repairing itself because it's what we call post-mitotic, gone through its differentiation phase, and and, and then it's this sort of um, terminally differentiated structure. So it relies on some stem cells in order to be able to remodel to an extent and certainly to repair itself. What most of the literature, literature shows is that following eccentric lengthening contractions, you have an activation of satellite cells, which essentially involves them waking up. They just usually lie around in this dormant state ready to, to take action when they need to. They get activated and then they'll move to the site where the muscle has been damaged. This can be actually triggered by the immune system. So once the immune system's done its job, it can release some factors which signal the satellite cells to sort of reach the site of damage and and contribute uh, their nuclei and, and uh, t- to the muscle and start to repair it. So they're sort of really important for muscle repair. And we've gone through, the literature's kind of gone through different phases of are they essential for repair, are they not? I would say the most recent evidence on this from really sort of really cool experiments where they've removed the ability of satellite cells to actually fused to muscle fibers shows that the muscle doesn't fully repair itself if they can't do that. So they are really important for skeletal muscle repair. In the context of some of the nutritional interventions we we can get into individually, there are some nutritional interventions which seem to have an effect on satellite cell activation. But as with everything, the methodologies used to look at this sort of can be open to interpretation at times. So we have to take that with yeah, with a pinch of salt at times. But nevertheless, satellite cells are very important for the for the repair and remodeling process.
0: Yeah, no, n- thank you for that. And look, we've been talking, we've been alluding to nutritional strategies, which is something I want to move on to in a second because people are going, come on, let's talk about nutrition. But obviously, we're trying to um, add some uh, understanding to this. And Kev, before we started recording, you, you were particularly keen to, Make sure that there was an area that, uh, you know, the, the, the Dan, y- your colleagues and yourself point out in the paper that it is important or it's crucial to find that the balance between recovery and adaptation requires perhaps a periodized approach to this rather than just a sort of a blanket approach to this, which, of course, is the temptation with, with nutrition and so on. I mean, Kev, I'll, I'll bring you in on on this one. Why? Why is that important and um, do you want to expand a bit on that topic? I think it's something that sort of is
2: being appreciated more and more, which is that often some sort of intervention that you're going to do to enhance recovery might actually impair or slow down adaptation so you you ha- you need to think about what your goals are and what the situation is and and it, they you know dan and colleagues really laid this out very nicely in the paper so, so again you go back I, I think it's mentioned in the paper a little bit the old story of 15 years ago when i'd go to conferences every other person would be up there saying that endurance athletes need high dose antioxidants because when you cycle for an hour you get all these reactive oxygen species and we've got to knock those out we've got to knock those out and so every athlete was on high dose antioxidants and that was just in the days when i think dan you probably know better than i do but i think malcolm jackson was one of the first to really start in some mouse studies suggesting that hey wait a minute when you're doing these high dose antioxidants you're actually you're actually knocking back the stimulus for the adaptation that leads to the training adaptations in the long term and I remember bringing that up at a conference one time. It was a it was a dietitian's conference. So of course, this guy gets up there. He's all enthusiastic, and all the dietitians are trying to figure out where they're going to go and buy their high dose antioxidants for their athletes. And I say, hey, you, I, you might want to be careful about this. And I was almost shouted out of the room at that point because I was, you know, the heretic for suggesting that this was the case. And you know, you've seen more and more evidence that this is this is the thing. And I think now it's pretty well accepted. I think the example that was in the paper, you know, if you're in a tournament situation when you're playing three or four matches in a in a weekend or something or even in a week, well then you might want to think about a little bit more focus on the recovery so that you can get back and play your game a day later or a few hours later depending on, you know, when when the next one is. But if you're in this sort of normal course of your training cycle, well then you need to think about the balance between okay, in this training cycle it's more important that I I slapped together five really hard workouts, so I'm going to do a little bit more recovery. But on the other hand, maybe I want to do that and just suffer so that I can get the training adaptation I need. And I'm saying this in generalities because I'm not the person to talk to about the, how to apply this. It's others who, who work with athletes. Uh, you know, the name that comes to my mind right away is Trent Stellingworth who's probably One of the leaders, Inigo, people like that are are really good at these kind of the balancing these kind of things. And they've written some really nice things about that. But that's I think that's really like I said in the paper here that's laid out very nicely as well. So and that's that's going to be the challenge is is how how do you how do you balance those two? The, The most important thing is to is to recognize it and to and to acknowledge it and say, all right. Here's what we have, and we've got to come up with this balance. How are we going to do it? Rather than just going rough shot onto, I'm going to give everybody branched chain amino acids because this paper shows it
1: reduces soreness. Dan, before
0: I move on, is there anything you wanted to add to that at all? Or?
1: No. That I mean, that's that's a real nice summary, and I'm glad that the sort of that, that message is what's got out because that's what we were trying to trying to get at, and what we outlined in this paper a few years ago. Well, there's still no clear answers for all of this. We're seeing more and more papers talk about periodized nutrition strategies and how, over the course of the season, you can implement certain approaches when they're required. And, and as Kev talked about, really, so we do really need you know the researcher practitioner to to drive these studies and, and show how it can be applied in in the sort of high performance setting. You know, I think as we'll as we'll get into as well for for some of these strategies despite the fact that they say they may, you know, act in this particular way to to have an effect on oxidative stress, they they may not even do that. You have to be super critical of the conclusions they've made, the types of assays they've used, you know, all of this comes into consideration. And when you actually nitpick it, you're actually not really left with much. <laughs> you you're really left with kind of only a few things that you say, yeah, this 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 might have an effect one way or the other. And you know it's just important for for you as a practitioner then to to figure out when it is you want to use it, so yeah, I mean, I guess we can get into that as we talk through a few of the different particular nutritional strategies
0: well Dan, it just so happens that that very issue is something that we're dealing with on our program at the i o p n which we only launched last week, didn't we, Kev, our journal club, which is specifically aimed at our audience, which is people wanting to become effective practitioners. They need to understand the science, but they need to understand how to critically appraise that information and contextualize it. And it's not an easy thing to do, as you guys know. You have you guys have been at this for a long time, one way or the other, and it's still difficult to do. You know, even after your PhDs and all that research and all that applied experience is <laughs> still difficult. I don't think any of us can can say that it's not. Right, Kev, let's talk about dietary solutions for these exercise-induced muscle damage situations that we've I think that we've done a pretty decent job of getting into and of course one of the first things that comes to mind is the role that protein and amino acids can have in this process and I can think of uh, no better a man right now to to give us the sort of the overview of how protein amino acids play a role in exercise-induced damage, and what do you want us to to take from that knowledge that we have to date?
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult one in a way. Like, like I said, a lot of those studies were done in, in these sort of sledgehammer-type models. And it seems like if I had to make an overview, I could say that probably – Sucking in a fair bit of extra protein after a damaging situation, da- damaging exercise bout in these in this kind of a model seems to have some sort of effect on soreness, and and that's what we found in our branched chain amino acid paper is we we saw a, a pretty good amelioration of the soreness. Again, you sort of have to take it with a grain of salt and and the mechanism is by no means it's just really difficult to come up with a mechanism we didn't see much of an effect on on muscle function and then then there's the argument of well if people are sore then they're not gonna do as much and that's potentially true in that case in that particular study we actually did electrical stimulation of the muscle so that it took the soreness out of it it was just what the muscle could do now on a on a practical level i'm sure that's that's a little bit different that people are probably less likely to do something when they're sore but y'all have both worked with elite or or high level athletes and you know as well as i do that people work through all sorts of pain and it doesn't even have to be high level even on the level of rugby that i played you know i saw guys you know get their nose smashed all over the face put a little cotton in there and you know go back in and and play and and so you can overcome the soreness pretty pretty readily so what does it really mean but most of the stuff with protein and amino acids that I've seen is, I mean, I, there may be some with that it have some effects on. Dan, maybe, you know, since you've done this more recently, but mostly it's soreness that I see that's affected. And I'm not sure what that applied, to be honest. Now, the, there is one interesting study. It was done by um, Catherine Black down in New Zealand. And it wasn't with protein, but it kind of it, it gets into the soreness versus function thing and instead of doing a one-off heavy duty bout she tracked these were professional rugby union players down in New Zealand and she tracked their soreness over their preseason training you know so they came in i mean nowadays they don't really come in ever untrained these guys but in less peak i should say and and there seemed to be something this was with omega-3 fatty acids but there seemed to be something in the soreness there and then because of that, that does translate into training. What's the right word? Sharpness. Would that work? You know, if you're less sore, then you're probably going to be more likely to push a little bit more. So that was the theory anyway. So I suppose there is an ap- applicability to the soreness, but it's it's kind of roundabout. It's not direct. And so I'm not sure what the protein and amino acids in that case really mean. And again, going back to the models, the, the model of supplementation that we used in those studies are, is often very
0: artificial as well. Let me ask that question from a different perspective and where I'm thinking is like Dan, for example, had mentioned this could certainly be an, yes, it's an issue in the gym with people lifting and, but endurance athletes, ultra endurance athletes, I've worked with a few that are running crazy distances across mountains and so on. There's huge amounts of issues here. Lots of scenarios where muscle damage is going to be induced. But another thing that is an issue there is that they can barely eat enough to keep up with their their activities. So, not so not specifically energy availability type conversation. But what about eating enough protein then? About protein sufficiency or amino acid sufficiency? Because of course, in those athletes, there is a possibility that they may be under eating protein, particularly in the uh, endurance. Athletes. It's you know, it's an area that does require some convincing sometimes that they should consume more protein relative to the other macronutrients. Is there anything there?
2: No, I mean I don't Dan, maybe you do. I don't know of any any studies on you know, showing that in a low protein intake that there's more muscle soreness in certain athletes. I I don't know of I'm ignorant of anything if there is anything out. I'm not
0: just talking about soreness, just the the process of the damage itself, which may not necessarily result in the symptom of of soreness.
2: I, I, I mean, sorry, I was using soreness as a yeah, sure. as a catch-all term there. But for damage, no, I I don't know of any Dan.
1: No, I think you know the way I would look at it is: is first of all, it's unlikely to probably have any protective effect. So whether or not the muscle is going to be damaged, I think is independent of you know the the protein intake. You know, Kev will tell you. I think we know anyway that the best way to adapt to repeated training bouts is, is coupling the training session with adequate protein intake. So if someone's not getting adequate protein intake, they probably haven't adapted that well over time anyway, or as best as they, as best as they could. But I mean, in in terms of, yeah, I would just back up what Kev said in that the studies that are out there basically show that uh, a start, the, the protein synthetic rate between eccentric and concentric contractions isn't isn't really that different at all. And when proteins, extra proteins provided in these studies, we don't really see any changes to mechanisms within the muscle. The, the, the best study I can think of, the most recent one is done from the guys down at Exeter Uni. Now, they did combine protein with a polyphenol supplementation, but they've done the sort of most in-depth dive into the muscle following damage to see what's going on. So this was published after, you know, only in the past year or so, but essentially they showed that there was an improvement in the rate of recovery with the protein and polyphenol drink, but there was no change in myofibrillar protein synthesis. There was no change to sort of genes associated with inflammation so those processes are unlikely to have contributed to that acceleration of recovery. So I think that is the most in-depth study and where we're at with this is you you would never want to compromise adequate high-quality protein intake. It might help you recover quicker, but it's certainly not due to mechanisms that we can see directly at the muscle. I mean, that that's where I am with it anyway and what my understanding at present is.
0: No, that's great. The reason why I asked simply is Again, when you know you you hear people talking about muscle damage and you know remodeling of muscle, you know one starts thinking about throwing protein at it and I think it's quite clear that that isn't necessarily what well, isn't what we believe is necessary, so you've mentioned a bit before you guys were delving into this issue of this balance between recovery and adaptation and repair and so on and this is where like as kev was saying there has there has been quite a lot of interest in the role of things like antioxidants whether we're talking sort of the high dose stuff that you get in in supplements that are very much at supra physiological levels you know it's not it's not at levels found naturally in the diet and of course that's often how it's marketed as being potentially a better solution because it packs a bigger punch you know it's going to wipe out those reactive oxygen species and and so on or perhaps we can go food first we love using that phrase food first and there are some there are substances found in fruits and vegetables like polyphenols for example cyanidins, and all those sorts of things that may potentially have a role here because you you guys have talked about this maybe we could just quickly just talk about this this role of COX 1, COX 2 production, and, you know, wanting to put the fire out and why that may or may not be a good idea. Bearing in mind we are talking about athletes as well where there's a point to this training
1: you you've alluded to the first point which is that you know there are these functional foods which offer some additional health properties above their sort of basic nutritional value so they they contain high levels of polyphenols um so the, you know the most common are, are flavonoids and, and tannins uh, and the same with the sort of anti the the, the direct antioxidants so vitamin and C, vitamin C and E um which you know the main ones that are usually touted if we take all these things together, the reason that people tend to promote them in an in a exercise induced muscle damage perspective is that they've got anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. What I would like to start with saying on this is that these things should be the basis of a, of a good diet anyway, because we know that, for example, with vitamin C and E, we have a requirement to get this from the diet. So in that respect we shouldn't be compromising these things we absolutely need them in the diet when we're talking about high levels and using them to try and direct them at different components of muscle damage and recovery that's a different that's a completely different perspective what most of the studies on, on this area try and do is that because of the sort of the fundamental way in which these different things work by trying to scavenge free radicals and potentially sort of limit the effects of uh, of inflammation, they, they kind of say, okay, that's the basic mechanism. So if we give them in these exercise-induced muscle damage studies, if we see a change, it must be due to changes in reactive oxygen species or inflammation or so on. I, you know, based on based on the evidence and and James Copley wrote the the part in our paper on this which I, which was really interesting to me and sort of definitely opened my eyes to a a new perspective on this was it's it's really unlikely that the the antioxidant properties of these foods are going to outcompete first of all our own antioxidant systems but it's also unlikely that they're going to accumulate at the right place at the right time in the right quantity to take care of what's being produced. Uh, and James also sort of made a really good point based on really sound theoretical knowledge that if, for example, some of these antioxidants, let's take vitamin C and A, if they could accumulate at the site of, uh, let's say, an inflammatory cell, which is you know engulfing what it needs to engulf, it's producing reactive oxygen species, it would probably facilitate the immune cell rather than Sort of dampen any of the response, so it's super unlikely that these things are are having an effect um, uh, in that direction. And I think a pitfall with the research on this as well is that oftentimes they they remove a lot of the sort of let's say polyphenols or you know the amount of antioxidants that people are getting in the diet right down to a really low level, so that then they're sort of replacing it with a known amount. So whether these things actually have any effect on top of a well balanced diet, that's that's you know that's another question in itself. But you know there have been some studies that suggest, uh, particularly on vitamin C, you know Graham Graham Close here that was some of his postdoc work with Malcolm Jackson, as as Kev um, pointed out before, and uh, and, and Carmen Co- uh, Gomez Cabrera published a long time ago showing that potentially high doses of these things might actually blunt the training and adaptation response. Through what mechanisms, you know, we're not entirely sure. But what seems to be the case is that, you know, for a potentially modest effect on something like muscle soreness, there is the risk that you might blunt the training adaptation response. So throwing the kitchen sink at things when it comes to antioxidants and anti inflammatory type stuff, I think is definitely not the way to go. You're probably more likely to have a detrimental effect than you are to have any positive effect. So my take home from all of the, the information I've collected over these over these years is that, you know, we should be promoting a sort of polyphenol rich, food first, eat a rainbow, all the different things uh, that we talk about approach, but I don't see there being a real need for having high, real high doses of these anti-inflammatory, anti-oxidant uh, type compounds.
0: But that's boring. <laughs>
1: yeah it doesn't sell,
0: yeah and you're right i when I read your your review there that section was interesting because I didn't know so much about this, and this makes sense you know the what's happening is in a specific area of the body in a specific parts of the muscle, there's a localized situation there's it's contained, so to speak, of course, when you're ingesting these things, it's very much more system wide so you know, we don't sort of have heat-seeking missiles for these strategies. So if if you only look at it from a very simplistic perspective, it's very easy to understand how those strategy solutions have, have been suggested. But like you said, now that we know more, specifically with these techniques that you guys are using in the lab, it's obviously clear now that that's uh, maybe misguided. Unfortunately, the supplement companies don't necessarily want us to know that, but <laughs> that is very much where we're at. Kev, there's a similar topic, and we, you know, we did a podcast uh, only a few podcasts ago about omega-3s, which is very interesting, the emerging research in that area, particularly as it relates to things like muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy and so on. But specifically on this topic of exercise-induced muscle damage, what do we know about omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, Kev, and what should we take, take home from it? So the omega-3
2: fatty acids, as far as muscle damage goes, I think the main rationale for it is an anti-inflammatory, omega-3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. So that's the main rationale. And we did a study when I was in Sterling a few years ago in footballers. These were semi-pro footballers. And we had a, a little bit of success in ameliorating some muscle soreness, as I said, Earlier in that situation, the interesting thing is, like I say, the, the rationale is that it's anti-inflammatory. But in that study, the indications we 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 didn't really see any amelioration of systemic inflammation. So we measured C-reactive protein, you know, a marker of of systemic inflammation. Didn't see any difference between the the when there was fish oil and when there wasn't. But we did see some some more local effects and so we through deduction and some jordan philpot was the first author and he laid this out very nicely in the in the um discussion that there seems to be some sort of protective effect on the structural integrity of the cell membrane so going back to this notion of that the omega-3 fatty acids are incorporated into the cell membrane and in this study we we had the supplementation for um four weeks i think it was might have been six. Anyway, if several weeks before the the muscle damaging exercise, so that that would have been the case. Now, we didn't measure muscle biopsies in this study. We didn't have the wherewithal to do that, but we did have the red blood cells, and it was incorporated in the red blood cells on a time course that should have, the muscle biopsy should have, I mean, the muscle cell membranes would have had more. So it, it looks like from the evidence in there that whatever effect we were getting was in the cell membranes rather than. Uh, uh, an overall um, systemic anti-inflammatory effect. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and we did see a decrease in leakage of this, of CK, you know, so one of the things that's always done in these, often in these muscle damage models is you you measure intracellular proteins that end up out in the, in the blood. So you get a leakage of, of creatine kinase and myoglobin and, and other different measurements. And we did see an amelioration of that. So that again would have been at least consistent with the the notion that there was something going on in the cell membrane, that there was less leakage. Now CK is, you know, I'm sure Dan could tell you that the, I mean, we were getting in some studies, we would get a 500 fold difference between individuals and their response to CK. So it's incredibly variable, but, but at least in this case, it was. There was there was enough that there was a difference between the groups. So all in all, it looks like the if anything, the omega three fatty acids are having some sort of impact by changing the the composition of the of the cell membrane. Again, these were high level footballers, not not fully professional and, and elite, but they were high level training pretty hard. But we did the same model where you know we did the eccentric, really heavy eccentric session that they would never really do in any kind of real training or or competition. So how to interpret that is again goes back to how difficult it is, I think, to interpret some of these and to apply practically some of these kind of situations. But if you go back to what I mentioned before Catherine Black study, there was some sort of amelioration of of soreness in those elite rugby players over that training Camp kind of situation, preseason training. How much that really helps them, I don't know. But you know, that was at least a more ecologically valid kind of a model to to use. That's probably more applicable for for some of the listeners if they want to apply some of this stuff.
0: But also a bit like Dan was saying, you know, when it comes to the previous conversation about antioxidants, polyphenols, and so on, we should eat. A balanced diet, rich in colours and so on and so forth, you know, makes me reflect on a overwhelming statement from our recent podcast, Kev, with Chris McGlory about omega-3s, where he felt, you know, there just isn't really anything that would convince him that we should take supplements of omega-3s, apart from scenarios where you're not gonna eat oily fish or So on and so forth. Is is that the same on this topic? You feel, or or not?
2: I I would. I'm generally against supplements for the most part, unless someone is exhibiting, you know, some sort of they just won't eat something. Now, again, as we talked about in that other pod, in in our culture, in in Britain and in USA, people don't eat that much oily fish. You know, they're certainly not eating algae to to. The omega 3s from that. And regardless of what a lot of vegetarians say, that you, you don't get a lot of transformation of the ALA to or arachidonic acid to um, yeah. omega 3. So I i do know, again, just from conversations with nutritionists with various rugby clubs, that a large portion, if not the majority, of these pro rugby players are on omega 3 supplements all the time. Um, so Maybe that's why I don't know exactly what the rationale is. I haven't got that far, but
0: well, oftentimes I, mean? I i I have an idea, and that's partly you know i having worked with a lot of teams over the years, you know young young guys, young girls can be quite fussy, athletes can be quite fussy, although it is true, rugby players tend to be a bit more disciplined in doing what you ask them to do, and if even even when they're away from the club. You know, whilst you can't see what they're eating, there is this mindset of uh, well, you know, for insurance, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them some omega threes at the uh, at the clubhouse because at least I can be sure that they're getting them in. Is probably the mindset there. I, what I'm hoping is the listeners don't sort of all start rushing out and buying antioxidants, rushing out and buying omega three supplements um, to to help deal with this problem because that isn't necessarily how they should be looking at this. I mean, I, again, I think if hopefully a message is getting through and
2: Dan said it several times and I've said, you said it, you know, food first and yeah, to eat, eat, a, eating a diet with fruits and vegetables with lots of polyphenols and, you know, cyanins and tannins, et cetera. I think that's and vitamin C, vitamin E. I don't see how that's a bad thing. Adding lots of supplements on top of it, not ever going to be a fan of that or I can't see it. I mean, who knows? Uh, uh, skeptical, but open-minded as you know, but, but I don't see it. It just doesn't make any sense in, mm-hmm. in a lot of these situations. So yeah, I think, I think hopefully that hopefully you get two messages out of this podcast, which is yeah. Food first, let's get the diet right before we start worrying about these exactly. supplements. Yeah. And second adaptation and recovery aren't the same thing. And so you got to think about what your goals are. And if we can, if, if your listeners go away
0: with those two messages, I'll be happy. Yeah, just because you can find them in supplements, it doesn't mean you should be going out of your way to avoid them in your diet. And needless to say, there's lots of things in food that that um, we get in addition to these things that, that that we need. Oh, um, and there's lots of things in supplements that you get too. Ah, uh, exactly. <laughs> banned <laughs> potentially. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole nightmare in itself. So if you're taking no. a high
2: dose of something, you're also more likely to be taking a high dose of some sort of banned substance that might yeah. be a contaminant in these things too. And exactly. so there's another reason to kind of be leery of supplements. Hmm. Which got another big. Wasn't there a paper out a month or so ago? Again, coming out with that message. Yeah, it's been for. You know, for like 10, 15 years, there have been several of these papers coming out with these contaminants. You'd think these people would learn.
0: Yeah, you'd hope. Now, Dan, there is a potential exception to this rule of not needing supplements, and that would be potentially for vitamin D, vitamin D, for those on the other side of uh, the Atlantic. What, what What about vitamin D? Now, we've done, of course, a podcast, Dan, where we thoroughly delved into vitamin D. It's an area that you've spent a lot of your time researching and, and um, I do recommend everyone listens to that podcast, but specifically with regards to the role of vitamin D in exercise induced muscle damage, what do we know? And as I've just teased, where might there be an argument for supplementation on this particular situation?
1: Okay, so I mean with regards to the need for supplementation, as as you say, we covered we covered a lot of the details in in the other podcast. So I definitely encourage people to listen to that for sort of the ins and outs. But essentially for for those of us who lie or so live sort of further and further away from the equator, for more months of the year we're gonna see less sunlight, which is the, the direct mechanism where we're getting most of our vitamin D from. So there 's plenty of evidence to show that for for many months of the year if you don 't see enough sunlight you 'll have low vitamin D levels which are associated with a number of sort of adverse health outcomes so during the winter months in particular, at least where we live here in in the u k you know we, we we do champion the idea of having a daily vitamin D supplement of around sort of a thousand two thousand international units, and that that corrects deficiency and keeps you in the in the adequacy zone. In terms of its role in, in in muscle damage, I mean there are only a few a few papers which tend to show a positive effect on on recovery. One of my papers was one of those. Um and we saw sort of a, a an enhanced recovery of force in the the later stages of recovery, of the recovery process, sort of 96, 40, I think it was 48, 96 hours between those time points is where we saw the sort of main benefit. We also did some sort of basic cell culture studies on that and, and showed uh, in, a, in a roundabout way that we're seeing some effect of vitamin D on the ability of our, our muscle stem cells to fuse to one another and to produce muscle. So we can't say that's a direct mechanism, but it, it could be one of the ways in which vitamin D might be having an, an effect on muscle. But there is also the sort of really understudied side of this, which is vitamin D in the immune system. And there's considerably more evidence. On vitamin D and its role in innate and acquired immunity, um, than there is on on direct muscle sort of studies. You know, as an example, we know that our our macroph- uh, macrophages, the the cells that come in after neutrophils to sort of help out with the muscle damage and and start to get rid of all the mess, they can directly synthesize and activate vitamin D from the correct precursors, and they also have a vitamin D receptor to be able to sort of utilize it as well. So vitamin D can act as a really important regulator of our immune system and sort of enhances antimicrobial activity and and so on and so forth. So one area that I would like to see more... Uh, Research done on, and and hopefully we can do some of that going forward in the future is to look at whether vitamin D plays a modulatory role, not not essentially dampening the immune response, but making sure that if you're vitamin D uh, sufficient, that that immune cascade is doing what it's supposed to do. Because I imagine that if you're severely vitamin D deficient, there's going to be some negative consequences. On the way, the immune system acts in response to muscle damage, as it does in other areas of the body. So the, the the evidence is, I would say, is sort of moderate, but certainly with regards to making sure that your vitamin D levels are sufficient, the the evidence is really good. We need to make sure that that's the take home message. This isn't an ergogenic supplement by any means. All we should be trying to do is correct for a deficiency. You know, I've seen so many papers which have got this poor. Research design where they supplement people who are already vitamin D replete, and I and I can't understand why we keep seeing these studies and why people think we're going to see some additive effect. So, for anyone who's out there, you know, students who are going going into this area, please sort of be critical of that and try and design studies where we're looking at people who have vitamin D deficiency to start with and looking at the effect of that.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? And we've certainly done a podcast on that. Kev, let's just let's, let's let's move on to one of the last areas that I wanted to cover because we are running out of time here, or we're close to running out of time already. Creatine monohydrate is a popular substance. It's used by huge numbers of people. You know, when you start thinking about strength, power, hypertrophy, and so on, often creatine monohydrate has been seen to to play some beneficial roles. As far as you're aware, is there there anything here that argues a case for creatine monohydrate and exercise-induced muscle damage, Kev? I don't think there's a great deal of information, really. Uh, I, I certainly
2: haven't seen anything that's convincing to me. I think, you know, Dan, you all touched on it in this review a little bit, but I wasn't familiar with those studies at all, and I wouldn't go crazy with it. For a muscle damage situation, uh, I don't know. think I don't see any re- rationale for that. Yeah, great. Right. I mean, people are using it all the time for with resistance exercise and training anyway, so mm-hmm. you know, probably moot point.
1: Yeah, and those studies that that we cited are, are using the same doses that you would use anyway for creatine loading. So, yeah, it, it's almost it's almost a case of well, there's no need to do more than you might already be doing if you're if you're if you're taking creatine anyway but yeah i think the evidence base for actual direct effects on muscle muscle damage and repair is is too limited to make any conclusions
0: so dan you guys have an excellent a practical set of considerations where the focus is very much on a on being pragmatic about this which of course is spot on with where we're trying to take this conversation because of course it's about looking at the science unpacking the science you know what do we know about exercise induced muscle damage but ultimately what we're interested in here is what can we do about it from a nutritional perspective so from a practical perspective you know what are your sort of final points on this topic
1: well i think one of the, the key things we have to stress first is that food first approach as a as a baseline that's not a food only approach uh, i'd sort of make that point we're not saying that there's absolutely no need for supplements whatsoever but we should be basing this around getting you know plenty for supply of of micronutrients from different sources in the diet so we, we need to as a practitioner you should be first of all just making sure that the athlete is trying to meet these nutrient demands from having a very rich and dense diet so in in ter- then in terms of sort of intervening with the exercise response we have to bear in mind that for the normal training session the normal block of training as as Kev alluded to before you know I don't think there's any need to be doing anything extra to try and ameliorate any of the effects associated with any of those sessions even if muscle damage might occur even if there is an eccentric component even if there is some muscle soreness i don't think we need to do too much to intervene there other than ensure that we're on point with all of our basic nutrition strategies at least in our paper where we sort of show the conceptual region where you might want to intervene is where the dose of exercise stress is is very high. And that could be in a, a tournament situation where you have you're repeatedly going through these very strenuous exercise bouts. In in that situation you would be trying to recover as quick as possible. And in those certain situations you might consider the things that have got a higher evidence base there's no real detriment to using some additional sort of cherry juice, for example, pomegranate juice, which are higher in these polyphenols and flavonoids and tannins and so on. And you might get an amelioration of some of the, the detrimental effects of that high exercise stress. So in those tournament situations and repeated high dose of exercise stress, that might be where a practitioner would intervene with some of these extra things. But for the most part, I, I honestly think that nailing all of the, the key things that we've talked about, you know, making sure that high quality protein distributed correctly across the day in, in the right amounts is key. Making sure the energy availability is where we need it to be. Making sure the guys are, are all vitamin D replete and having a very um, rich and, and varied diet is, is where we're going to see the best benefits that's going to support the recovery process the adaptation process the best anyway so if people want to sort of see a visual representation of that you know on the sort of last page of our review i think it's figure two you know you can see how we've sort of tried to visualize that and where you might want to intervene so if people want to follow that i think the paper's open access but if not we can send you a copy no problem so yeah i would just encourage people to have a look at that have a look at that figure and see what they think. But yeah, they would be my take-home messages really. And you know, just consider as Kev said before, that balance between recovery and adaptation. You know, they're not the same thing.
0: That's brilliant. Dan, actually, I yeah, the um it's not open access, but there are copies on the university repository. So okay, I'll perfect. link to those so they've got those. Because that is a nice diagram. And actually, before I I let Kev have the last word, which is always the right way, <laughs> I just wanted to come back to something I, I did want to talk about briefly, and this, that's this concept of the hormesis theory and why, why actually th- that is something that you've referenced here, it, it, as it just so happens it, in the um, blurb under figure two, you talk about the framework for the hormesis theory in the context of nutritional intervention. So just, just quickly, what does, that, what does that even mean and why is that actually an important concept potentially?
1: Well, it's essentially what we were just saying there that, you know, that, that, that sort of with different biological phenomena, you have this sort of bell-shaped curve really where a low dose of exposure to something potentially stressful is not going to really do much, by the way, of adaptation. With increasing amounts of exposure to that to that challenge to homeostasis, you're going to see an adaptation. But with too much of it, you're going to see negative adaptation and negative consequences. So that's kind of what we're getting at with this curve of I guess the 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 dose of the exercise stress and the adaptive response. You know, and 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 that's where we've kind of tried to superimpose where nutrition might might overlay on that and where we might conceptually be able to have some sort of effect.
0: That's a great illustration of that phrase I use of you can but should you. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Kev, so do you have any final points then you want to raise here about our conversation today? Any thoughts, things that we may have missed or you wanted to quickly uh, bring to the end? Maybe of not program?
2: miss so much as re-emphasize again, yeah. applicability of the results from these models needs to be very carefully considered. And maybe in the future, we we, we might want to do change the model a bit to more like what I mentioned before, with Catherine Blacks, where she actually did it in a training camp for the elite athletes. But also think about some of the studies that, well, Ollie did one. Ollie Wittard did one when he was a PhD student where we really ramped up the cycling, the stress, on, like as in a training camp for a week. We doubled their – or we tried to double their workload. And in that case, it was high protein. And Asker did a few studies with a similar model with high carb and others maybe those are are more applicable or more easily applicable situations that we can apply to to looking into these kind of interventions to see how effective they are with the caveat with the understanding of the overall what, what we're talking about this the hormesis the potential downside of of this that we're doing this in a particular situation for a particular reason and not just this blanket hey we're training hard let's all take this stuff so hopefully, you know, we beat that horse to death and and people will take that, that home. As far as these individual supplements go, I think Dan touched on it nicely there is that, yeah, maybe there's some idea about some of them, but mostly I, I think, again, if we can just emphasize eating, you know, the first goal needs to be so many people, athletes are suffering more from not eating properly overall than they are from not having the right supplement. I think that's, I think. All the practitioners I've ever talked to, the best in the world,
0: they'll, they've always told me that. Absolutely. Well, listen, guys, I think we've had a – I personally have really enjoyed this conversation. It's ironed out some creases I feel that there are in this topic, and um, you guys have done a great job helping me and everyone else get to grips with what is essentially quite a complex topic. I look forward to bringing you back, Dan, again, but, on this topic specifically, when we know more, it'd be great to repeat this conversation and see if we're any you know if we deviated at all from any of the things that we've talked about today, which will be fascinating and I will put links to the uh the paper in fact several papers I think that are of interest here, the various podcasts that we've done with you Dan and, and kev, and you know links to how people can find you and uh so on and so forth. So without further ado, I'd like to say thank you, Dan. Thank you, Kev, for your time. And I'm very much looking forward to bringing another podcast back in the very near future. Take care, everyone, and stay safe.